Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. It says this, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would draw near to us through this text. Help us see uh, your love and your kindness towards us. Help us see uh, the beauty of the word beloved. Help us see uh, the reality of fruit coming out of our lives as we abide in Jesus. Will you help us, Father? Draw our hearts near uh, to you and draw near to us as well. We pray that in your name. Amen. So when I was a uh, young boy, uh, timeout slash I realized right before service started this is the last preaching I'll do in my 30s. So uh, if I break down, it'll, I think I'll be okay. Um, they say that older pastors are wiser, so I guess I'm getting older, and maybe you have a wiser pastor, but maybe not. But anyway, uh, when I was a younger boy, I collected uh, basketball cards. It was kind of uh, the rage. Uh, we had Jordan. I mean, we had Shaquille O'Neal. We have a dream team, so come on, you're probably going to collect basketball cards. NBA Jam was the game of choice. Uh, NBA, I think Inside Stuff played every Saturday morning. Everything was NBA all the time when I was a young boy. So collecting cards just seemed natural because of how the NBA was everywhere. In those days, uh, basketball cards, when you got a good one, there was a standard procedure for it. You placed it inside a sleeve, and then you placed that sleeve inside a case to protect it. It would kind of keep the edges from getting dinged up, and then you would go to this magazine. That's a printed thing with with pages, and and it was called a Beckett, and it had the value of every single card that that was printed inside this magazine. So you could look up your card see uh, pretty much how much it was worth. As long as it wasn't dinged up pretty bad, you knew exactly what you had. And you could sell your card, you could trade your cards, you could collect your cards and add up value, all of that. It was kind of pretty simple to identify the value of what you had uh, when I was younger. Then you fast forward to about two years ago in the middle of the pandemic, I, like all 30 to 40-year-old males, went and found their old cards. And I wanted to go see, what do I have? Like, is there a hidden gem in there? Like, what's going on here? And so I began to kind of look up the value of all these old cards uh, that I had. And lo and behold, everything had changed. Uh, Now, you don't just open this this magazine and look up the value of your cards. Uh, Pretty much all cards had to be sent to a grading company. Blake and Brandon helped me with this. Uh, And they would actually grade your card. So you'd send off your card to a card guru, I don't know who made them that, but you send them to a card guru with a significant amount of money and then they would grade your cards in between one and 10 based upon uh, really the card's imperfections. Uh, Really specific criteria are used to grade your card. Are there any Mars on any edge anywhere on the card? You're dinged for that. Is there any sign of wear? They put that thing under a microscope and is there any type of smudge on the surface at all? And they would even look to see if maybe the card was printed off just like a a fraction of a millimeter off of center, and then your card would be kind of dinged for that as well. And and here's kind of what I'm running at. There was clear things.
things that were used to see if a card was genuine and if a card was valuable. There were clear markers that you had to use, and you use those to define what do you kind of have. If your card gets a 10, uh, you get it sent back in a special case with a, with a number, and then your card is worth a decent bit of money if it's, if it's a good card. Uh, and this is kind of the, the process for the cards. You use different tools uh, to differentiate uh, the value. What did I find when I looked through my cards? Nothing worth value, unfortunately. I, um, as a Husky boy, decided I'd pick a favorite player called Anthony Hardaway and trade all my Jordans for him. That card owner was not a nice man. That, that card store owner who did that to me was not a nice man. Um, I also found this in looking through my cards. Um, looking at the process of gathering cards uh, as a male in his later 30s, all of a sudden I had this realization. It's a bit odd that grown men will hoard pieces of paper with the pictures of their favorite grown men on them so passionately. And then they spend lots of money for them. Like, it's a, it's a weird thing. We could have all of their talk about how we assign value and how that's weird. But again, I bring all of that up just to point this one thing out. It's normative to use specific markers to differentiate between things. This process is used for card values. And then it's also used to diagnose and differentiate authentic believers from, from ones that are not. In Matthew chapter 13, we see a parable of the soils, and it's mixed with many other parables around that 13th chapter called the, the mystery parables, and they all kind of have this scenario uh, surrounding uh, professing believers. And the big takeaway as you go through these parables in the chapter is that authentic, living faith, not just proclaimed faith, but real living faith produces visible fruit. That's what you're meant to get in chapter 13. There are things that happen. If that language is kind of foreign or weird to you, it simply means there are discernible, visible, tangible, real things that should come out of your life. Those are the fruits if you have a real and authentic faith. And if you don't have a real and authentic faith, those fruits will not come from your life. They're visible markers. If they're present, it's a good sign. If they're not present and you notice it, it's meant to actually bring you into real faith. And this concept isn't a one-off. This wasn't just Jesus's words at one moment. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, we kind of see the same thing. In verses 16 through 21, Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut off or is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. We live in this point in history uh, where it feels a bit taboo or off limits to kind of bring this up. Uh, to talk uh, in this way that Jesus does, recognizing through markers uh, authenticity of someone it, it is now, if you do that in the public sphere or anywhere out where other people can see it, it's actually considered legalistic uh, and judgmental and harsh if you use certain criteria to recognize or not recognize people as something. 
And yet, despite all of that, Jesus did it without hesitation all over the Gospels. You'll see it brought up over and over and over again. And that's what the Hebrew author has been bringing up in the book in the section that we've been in for the last couple of weeks because it's necessary and valuable to be able to differentiate at times between real and not. Not so you can condemn people, not so you can point at them and hurt them, not so that you can destroy them, but so that you can understand how to navigate some things relationally. And then here's the other big kicker. And also so that you will not be deceived about your own faith. And you have these markers to kind of look for and they kind of help you uh, judge some things about where you're at. Something should not surprise us and we see it all over the Bible. There are many people who claim to be fruit bearers. They claim to be authentic believers with living faith. Many claim to be Christians and and to be followers of Jesus. And what do we see all over the Gospels? They're actually not. There isn't actually any fruit out of their life. This is what the author has been dealing with, showing that some will claim to be Christian. Two weeks ago, this was the text. But they're actually content in being proverbially or chronically immature. They have no zeal for the word of God. They have no zeal for the things of God. They have no desire to understand God. And therefore, they become helpless about how to discern and live in light of Christ. They don't know how to see what is good from what is evil, to tell truth from from falsehood. This type of person has no knowledge or appetite for the word, and they are not, because of their fruit, believers. And they're called to repent. Chronic immaturity is not a fruit of true faith. Now, yes, when you come into the faith, we're all kind of immature and need to grow. What he was talking about is if you were content to never learn anymore, no, 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 I'm just good. I'll just take heaven and you can keep the information. That's a problem. This person like this, they're not a villain. They're not meant to be treated horrifically. The hope is that anyone who sees this will not necessarily be condemned by the people around them. The hope is if a person sees this in their own life, that they'll be drawn to come to the real Jesus and meet him. Right? Not to be crushed, not to be wounded. The differentiation or the markers are hopefully to save the lost, not to crush the lost. Uh, I found this, uh, or if you found this to hit maybe way too close to home, this idea of immaturity and appetite for the word, one of the things that you should know is this text is not meant to take the security away from a believer. It's not meant to take the assurance of faith away from a person who is saved. It's to help people who are not truly saved so that they can come to actually real faith in Jesus and be transformed. Therefore, anyone who realizes this, you're actually getting a gift in that regard. It's not a punishment, it is help. It's a realization that God is drawing you to come deeper into and actually accept Jesus maybe for uh, the, the first time. It's God's hand reaching out to love and save. If you've sensed that over the, the last couple of weeks, just as clearly as I can say now, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Pray to the Lord. Reach out. Ask him, hey, will you save me? My, my heart isn't in any of those places. I've just kind of navigated around you. I don't really want to know you. I'm just kind of scared of you. Will you save me? Will you deal with my sin and my heart and my life? Jesus, will you, will you save me? If that's where you're at, it's not a terrible place to be because you know that God is coming after you and drawing you. The author talked about people who walk away from Jesus in the church in the text that we dealt with just a little bit ago. Ones who have markers in their life that seem to be rock-solid proof. Oh, of course that person is a believer. Look at these things. They're enlightened. Uh, They have some biblical knowledge. 
They've seen the power of God. They've been around the the power of the Holy Spirit. Many times these people, as the Bible says, they'll actually be a part of doing like great works. And yet despite all of those differentiating or visible signs, uh, that person can end up hating Jesus and walking away from the bride and saying, I want nothing to do with Jesus. They too, despite the promising signs at the beginning, do not have real fruit and therefore are not saved even though it kind of looked like it for a while. All of that brings us to where we are this week. If you've been like, hey man, that that was some kind of heavy stuff, the tone changes quite a bit in the text this week. The past two texts had some somber, maybe difficult things to look at, but in today's text, the author says, though we speak in this way, meaning though I spoke of immaturity uh, in a chronic sense and apostasy before, he says, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, things unlike those other examples. This is the author saying, I don't think those other examples are true of you. I think you are truly saved. I am sure of better things in your life, beloved, from a distance that may seem just like a a short transitional statement as if the author is saying, hey guys, those other guys have some rough stuff, but things are looking pretty good for you and and, and, and I, I love you, but the word beloved in this text, here's where we need to slow down and see what's happening. This word beloved is not from the author to you. This is not the author telling the original audience or you and I that he has some sort of declaration of love that he wants you to know about. The author of Hebrews says something way more impactful. He calls the readers beloved of God. No, no, I'm not telling you I love you. I'm telling you God loves you. He's reminding those who are in Christ that your destiny isn't to one day be reconciled to God where he loves you. Those who are truly Christ, who have turned to Jesus for the problem of their sin, declared their need for salvation. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. God save me. Those people are beloved by God now. The love of God is directed to them and on them and for them immediately in the moment. It may feel weird to kind of press that. You may not think that it's a big deal, or maybe you just think, you know, I, okay, I get it. God, God loves us. God, God loves me. I, okay, great. But this sentence is actually meant to move much deeper into your heart, son or daughter of God. God calls you beloved. You are the object of God's love, the child of God, loved by God much. See, we can get a little bit confused with, with the way the world throws out sayings like God is love. To the point where we assume, okay, well, if God is love, then there's like this low-grade, static level of love that he has for all things because he is love and, and he created all things. So every, everything gets that. But that's not what he's talking about in the text. Not some kind of prevailing over all things, everybody gets it type of love. This is agape. There's a personal, intentional, strong, and intimate love directed from God the Father to you. This isn't like the phrase, I love pizza, that's vague. The author is reminding you, if you follow Jesus, you are the beloved of the Father. Where does that meet you in good news? When you feel overwhelmed, when you feel lost in the shuffle, when you feel small or forgettable or unsecure or just kind of blah about yourself and you say, I don't know, things aren't where I expected them to be. Things aren't going like kind of the way that that I I wanted. Man, I, I just don't know. The author says, well, you need to remember something. That's not how God sees you or feels about you. He loves you. How much? Well, enough to rescue you. Enough to send Jesus to die for you. 
Enough to send the Holy Spirit to even open your eyes to your need for Christ. And then, as the Old Testament book says, and enough to sing over you with dancing. This is your father. He's not capricious and angry and looking for all the ways that you have screwed up. He is overjoyed in the love that he has for you and what Jesus has done to grab a hold of you. He's dancing over you in love, going, they are mine and I am theirs. I I love them. It's hard because we wish that these words could hit deeper. Beloved is what God calls you. I I love you. Not, Not the way I love all things or the way that we love vague things. There's this intimate and deep love that God has for those that are his. This is what the author opens up. Yes, there are people who are chronically immature. Yes, there's apostasy, and there are people that God just showers his love upon, that he loves them deeply. We can often hear things like that and think, okay, cool, God loves some people with a strong and intense love. Okay, I get it. But we might believe that he loves awesome people like that, like the believer that you look up to, the one that's killing it in the faith, like the, the one that's got it all under control. It's easy to believe, well, God, of course, God, God has like agape, beloved thing for, for them, but, but, but probably not for me. It's much harder to think that he feels that way about us, to which the author gives kind of a, a brilliant revelation. Every time our heart questions, I, I mean, I just don't know if he could love me or care for me or anything like that, the, the, the author points into something. He says, God is not unjust to overlook your work. And the love that you have for his name in serving his saints. What, what did the author do here? God is not unjust. He took the way you view God's love for you and he shifted it off of maybe your emotional view of yourself altogether and he places it instead on the character of God. God's love doesn't have as much to do with your emotion It's his character in his being. Follow me. We're works in progress, right? Unless you're completely not aware of who you are. We are works in progress. We are not perfect on this side of glory. There's still more that needs to happen. And our our general operating mode isn't that of hope and optimism. That's not where we stand all the time. There's some chipper people, but we're we're just not that way all the time. So it's easy to kind of see the gap between who we want to be and who we actually are in the moment and feel such strong disappointment over, over the work that's yet still to be done to believe that then God is that disappointed with you as well. We can begin grading ourselves by what is left to be done, what is still needing to be perfected instead of looking at the magnitude of what God has already done. And this gap between where we want to be and where we are begins to, if we're not careful, eclipse the enormous love of God for you. That's why you can't feel beloved because you still see the gap of who you are. So the author says, okay, I get that, but God's not unjust. God's not unjust. God will not ignore the real fruit that you are bearing now. Even if there's a gap that you think, he will not ignore what is there. Remember from the parables, those who bear fruit are truly God's. Those who bear fruit in his name, he loves and he never will let go of them. The author wants to show us if God were to ignore the fruit that we bear, he would become unjust and a liar of which he is neither of those things. You may ask, well, wait a second. Are we shifting to a salvation by works and and not grace? No, no, no. 
No, no, it's God who causes us to bear any fruit. It's God who draws, and it's only looking at Jesus that any fruit comes out of our life. The book of John, it is only when the the branches abide in Christ that we'll bear any fruit at all, and it's only the Holy Spirit leading us towards Jesus that causes us to abide and bear it. So it's not teaching that you will bear fruit and then get God's love by working really hard. It's reminding you the good work that God has done in you will cause you to hook onto Jesus and bear fruit. God will see that fruit, and he'll never ignore it. Your emotion doesn't dictate how he loves you. The beautiful work that Jesus has done in you shows you that he loves you. He will not ignore the fruit because he's not unjust. Have I lost you? All but one. Okay. Maybe one of 40. The next text or the, the next natural question becomes this. Okay. What exactly is this fruit then? What do I need to look for? What, what do we look for? What are the markers of true, living, active, Holy Spirit, wrought faith of the person who's abiding in Jesus? What are some of the things that we should be looking for? And maybe the, the way we start is, is what are some of the things that maybe aren't the best to look for? What are things that are, are, are maybe good but not foolproof uh, examples of fruit? Well, we saw that in the text over the last couple of weeks, Enlightenment. There will be many people who know some things about the Bible who are not saved. We should know about the Bible, but someone's knowledge isn't a proof that they are God's. Many of the Pharisees had this kind of situation going on that Jesus ran into in the New Testament. They had this strong love for the Old Testament word, and they knew more about it than most all of us probably put together, and yet that enlightenment was not a sign. Then great works. Jesus said, many will do great works in my name, and yet they will not know me. So great, big, and awesome, like things that you see out of someone's life, that's not a really great marker to look at as fruit either. Well, then what about proximity? Just kind of being around the church and with church people. I mean, they've been in the church for 30 years. Like that's got to be a fruit. And and all over the New Testament, we see people who are around all the time and they, they were not saved. Well, what about vocally claiming Jesus? Someone who says, I'm a Christian. Well, we see all over the, the New Testament as well. There are people who claim Christ and they have this low level of belief, but they've never actually turned to him as, as Lord. Here's kind of the tricky part. All of those are good things. They should not be avoided. We're meant to have biblical knowledge. We are meant to to do works in the kingdom of God. This is why the New Testament says that that if you pray and believe that God will move mountains for the work that you do in his kingdom, which means do what you think is impossible. We're meant to be around the body. We're meant to claim Christ with our mouth. All of those are good and needed. They're just not foolproof examples or evidences of faith. I read somewhere over the last week, or maybe someone told me, I'd, I'd give them credit, I just don't remember where, but a theologian said this, that when Christ returns and, and heaven invades earth and, and all things are restored, there's a decent likelihood that we're going to be fairly surprised by the people we see. Most likely there will be quite a few people that we expected to see there that we won't. And there's probably going to be a a decent handful of people that we didn't expect to actually see there, and they will. This is a commentary about how we judge outward things and outward signs that we normally look towards big, overt, showy, and flashy signs out of someone's life, and we think, well, look at those big things, and we equate those to real fruit, but those things shouldn't necessarily be trusted. So what's left? 
If you and I scour the New Testament for all of these texts and these examples of people who kind of claim Christ, but they end up not being actually saved, what is the thing that is missing? Oddly enough, it's the most obvious thing, biblically, but probably the most difficult for how we're wired to notice physically. The missing thing is love. This is what the author points to in the text. God will not overlook love. Let that train of thought sink in. God will not to forget to love those who show the sign or fruit of love that he's put in them. What does the fruit look like? What, what is this fruit? Well, the author kind of gives three examples. The fruit that manifests itself as this love from God is work for God and his kingdom. And it's love of God's name and service of the saints. Those are the three. Work for God's kingdom, love for God's name, service of the saints or fellow believers. Another way to put it is true fruit that shows living faith is love for the kingdom of God, love for the name of God, and love for God's people. The love for the kingdom shows in our work with him and the work that he's doing upon creation. Our love for God's name has this actual thing where we actually care for and revere and desire to be close to our, to our Abba Father. And this love for God's people shows up in the way that we serve them, treat them, and navigate them. The kind of aha moment comes when we realize that we often get caught up looking for Instagrammable, tweetable, newsworthy types of fruits in faith. We look for big and flashy and and hear this extraordinary appearing things as fruit and forget that the Bible says clearly you'll know them by their love. Nothing big, nothing flashy, and, and I guess we could parse the meaning of big but not you'll know them by their viral success stories of out of this world faith. Here's kind of the rub. We forget that fruit in faith often is unremarkable by the world's standards. Genuine faith, real saving faith in Jesus, really following him, often manifests itself in steady, unattention-seeking often hidden from public eye, exhibitions of love. Love for God's kingdom, love for God's name, and love for God's people. The work he mentions is is work for the ministry of God. This can be what we call here mission. Be sharing the gospel with a friend or a coworker or a neighbor. It's trying to press back darkness and see the redemption of things come to earth, seeing God work in the world and showing people who he is. And, and then it also comes in things like setting up a, a speaker before service. This is work so that people can hear the gospel. It, it definitely can be shown in serving in a kid's class. You're praying that they get to know Jesus and showing them Jesus. It comes in hospitality when you welcome the, the outsider into our body and say, welcome. We we want you to know the love of Jesus and the person of Jesus. I'm going to greet you, and and then you're going to get to come in and hear the beauty of who this Jesus is. It can be shown in faithfully tithing in ways that nobody even sees. It can be shown in bigger things like going to missions trips, hosting a, a missional community, being hospitable. See, these are all faithful works of seeing the kingdom of God become more uh, revealed to the earth, but here's the reality. Most of them aren't going to be noticed. there's not an account that someone is taking pictures and putting them on Instagram from like true fruit of the faith and then showing you cleaning your house before MC. The author says, love for God's name. This 
is simple and yet maybe it feels complex. Those who have genuine faith genuinely love God the Father. They want to know him. Not just in word, they want to know him. And they seek him through his words because that's how he's revealed himself. And they seek the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will be the counsel that shows us Jesus more. They want to lean into prayer. They trust and obey God with their life, even in the things that are uncomfortable. See, lots of people fear God, but it's a different thing to actually love him. It doesn't mean that if you love him, you won't fear him, but that fear presents itself a little bit differently. It's to pray and live in a way that also wants God's name to be made much of. Why did Jesus open up the prayer, Father, hallowed be your name? He's teaching us this fruit of love. God, it is your name and your glory and your kingdom and your will that is the best thing for all of creation, including me, even when I don't want it. So God, may your name be put in its right spot in my life. This, this is a fruit of love. I love your name. I love your name. This manifests itself also in the things of regularly showing up to worship. The last one is love through serving the saints or fellow believers. This can be serving the body here and the mentions, the worries that we mentioned before, but it also goes deeper. And it begs the question, do you love the people around you? Not do you begrudgingly do stuff that they benefit from. Do you care for them? Do you serve them? Do you care for them like your own family? Would you want them to be at your table? Do you bear their burdens? Do you call them to faith? Do you believe the best out of them? Do you want to see fruit out of their life? Do you want to see them serve in love? Do you want to see them grow? Do you want to be their cheerleader and their champion? Do you, do you love them? These categories of what appear to be underwhelming fruit, again, by the world standards, are powerful. God brought changes in the lives of believers that can't be faked. You can fake knowledge. You can fake cool works. You can fake proximity. You can't fake love for very long. I'm sure you can for maybe a year. You're not going to for 10. Definitely not going to for, for 20. These are powerful signs of God's love, signs that are evident in God's children, signs that are evident in people who have been transformed. I want to take a second to show you something about some decisions that we've made here and maybe just the hope is to, is to show you why and not toot our own horn. So I want, to, I want to say that on the front side. We shut down our live stream last year out of conviction regarding these fruits. Your other elders were the, the champions that pushed this even forward even before my own eyes. Right, we're not trying to be better than other people. We're not trying to be more holy than other people, but we became really apparent is through a screen, these types of genuine fruit will never flourish. I don't even know that they can exist. How can you do the work of God on your own terms, on your couch, through a screen? How does that work? Can you do that? How can you love God's name on your own time through a screen when he says you stop what you do on the seventh day to come and worship me? And you go, no, 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 I'll just tune in. Or how can you serve the saints if you can't even see them physically? Again, the, the decision to stop that, it's not a good one at all if you want to grow a crowd. But if you want to see biblical fruit come, having one, at least for us, wasn't a good decision either. 
So we laid it down going, hey, man, we want to see true and real fruit. We're not trying to blast everyone else. I don't have a a big ax to grind for everyone who has theirs on, but we want deeply genuine faith for all who are with us. If God brings us this group, if he brings us 300, it doesn't matter, but we want genuine and deep fruit, people flourishing in their faith as they abide in Jesus and to see this type of love come out of their life. We want to see a harvest, not come once in five years. A, ready, a regular harvest from God's people of this love for his work and his name and his fellow believers. The author then goes on to say, or leave three points with us. He's gone through, shown us what this real fruit of faith looks like. He kind of wants, wants to send us away with this. He says, be serious about faith. We see this and he uses the word, show earnestness. He's not saying going around with a scowl, like, I'm serious. Like, he's saying take your faith seriously, which means that you don't just walk in when you choose to, and that's the only time you think of it. Be energetic about it. Spend time developing in it. Don't mail it in. Wrestle with it. Give other people permission to, to come in and, and engage you and encourage you with it. Push forward to see more fruit. Be serious about it. And then he says be hardworking, not sluggish. This call is another kind of basic one, but a reminder to our own hearts, don't be lazy. The, the directive presses the question onto our hearts, are you mailing in your faith right now or are you trying to work it at it and work it out right now? We cannot work our way to heaven. But Jesus made it really clear, the Christian walk does take work and, and it is a little bit difficult. It's like the training of an athlete. It takes work and it takes discipline and it takes some energy and some intentionality and it will not be easy. Don't give up and don't be lazy. And the third one is have patience. Someday we'll inherit the fullness of God's promises to us. Someday it will not feel like this. Sin will be broken fully. We won't just be out of its penalty, but we'll be out of its presence. The glory of God will be with us. We won't be wrestling with God. Just show me your glory and hoping he will draw near at some points. His glory will be amongst us. All things will be set right. The world will not feel so crazy and upside down. But until then, the author says, have patience until you get there, though. Because it's a grind. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. This is why we don't say adopt Jesus and your life will get better and happier and everything will be just perfect for you. Jesus didn't tell you that. It's going to be hard, but hold on. Settle in, be serious, be diligent, be hardworking, and be patient. This might still seem odd. Why does the author warn us about immaturity and then talk about those who've left uh, in, in apostasy just to then tell us that we are loved and demonstrating real faith and then transition into this type of pep talk to keep it up. It seems hard to follow, but here is the point. If I've lost you a while ago, come back for this. If apostasy is giving up altogether, if it's quitting and ending up hating the name of Jesus, if it is quitting, then the opposite of apostasy is not getting first place or a gold medal. The opposite of apostasy is finishing well. It's not mailing it in and keep pressing towards the prize. As Paul says, we want to strive towards the finish line to know that we finished the race. The desire of our hearts is here, well done, my good and faithful servant. Man, I know it was hard. I know it was hard. 
To do that, we're going to need to see what he demonstrated in front of us. We're going to need to see the love of God clearly. We'll need to see what healthy progress looks like. And we're going to need to press forward together because we're going to get tired and it's really hard. And without each other and without continually looking at the love of Jesus, you and I will want to quit often. Often. And this is what the author does. He says, friends, look at the beautiful work that God's done. He's taken broken and lost people who rebelled against the name of God and he turned them into ones who love the kingdom of God. They love the name of God and they love each other. See how amazing that is. See the good work that God has done in you. Let it encourage you to, to kind of press you forward and not be content. Don't stop like a good coach. He's, he's, he's training us as faithful believers saying, I know it's hard. Don't slow down. Keep going. Right? I'm not a runner, but I imagine if you're like in the last mile, he's going, you can do it. I'm like, I want to quit. My side hurts. This is kind of what he's doing. You, you can do it. Keep going. Look at what God has done. He loves you. He cares for you. Jesus promised that he would never leave you. The Holy Spirit is with you when you don't even know what to do. God's presence is there if you'll lean into it. He's done amazing things, and he's not done. Keep going. Don't quit. As we close the section, we'll just give just extremely low-hanging fruit questions. Do you have the fruits of these types of love in your life? Are they there? Just honest question. Do you genuinely love the kingdom of God, the name of God, and the people of God? Does that love show itself only in how you think of yourself, or does it show itself in actual things? Even if they can't be seen by all. If you hear that and say, man, yes, I know I'm not perfect, but, but yes, I, I see those, and he's growing those, then, then here's the point. Praise the Lord for that. Thank him for his goodness and his kindness and his mercy. Thank you that he's done, or thank him that he's done that work. Ask him not to, to, to stop. And, and then here's the thing, tell him, hey, give me endurance though, because I don't want to stop. You've done a good work and you've been kind and you've been merciful, but I, but I don't want you to be done. Please, Father, thank you, but press me on to more works to see your name and fame grow, grow more fruit in my life. Thank him for what he's done. And then ask him to help you not quit and keep moving forward. If you'd say, you know, is that fruit a reality for me? You say, it was. Man, I'm tired. I mean, the last couple of years, I got busted up. Like, it, 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 was, it was real. I, I don't know where it's at right now. And I'd say lean into that as well. Pray for renewed zeal, energy, in love. All who are weary, come to me. I'll give you rest. He'll give you the rest to be able to go for it. It doesn't mean uh, that, that if you're saying, hey man, I've got tired and these kind of, uh, they've kind of lowered. It doesn't mean that you're not beloved anymore. We all get off track and we need to hear the call that the author gives us. Hey, press forward into earnestness. I get it. It's hard. Be patient with yourself. Press forward. Keep going. The race isn't over. If that's where you find yourself, don't ignore that today. Go to God over it in our time of prayer for renewed strength and renewed faith. Ask the Lord to stir your affections, to lift you up and give you the energy that maybe you had at one day. Here's kind of the thing. If you're going, man, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I can do that. Like in, insider knowledge, like he already knows, right? He's not, he's not going to be surprised. You're going to him about what he already knows going, Father, help me. You're a good father. I need your help in this. In our time of prayer uh, today in the backside of worship, we're going to have a couple people in uh, the, the back, Blake and, and Lauren, I believe. If you're sensing this, I want you to go back there and ask to be prayed for. 
Like this is a, a reality. When we confess, hey, this is where I'm at. God's drawing me out of it and have our brothers and sisters pray for us. This is where the spirit can meet you and kind of change the tide of what's happening. So I just want to press some of you. If you feel that, do not ignore it. Go and let your brothers and sisters pray with you and ask God to kind of renew you in zeal. Imagine the, the reality of if God is drawing you and you've been tired and you go be prayed for, imagine if he actually meets your prayer and you ha- actually have renewed strength and things don't feel as hard and you don't feel like it's such a grind and he kind of stirs your affections again towards his things. That's kind of what we're trying to believe about prayer. If you'd press back, well, I can pray for that in my seat. Yeah, you can. But you could also pray with your brother and sister. Maybe you realize, man, I've just never had those types of love. You've navigated around God, but not actually loved him or submitted to him. If you fall more in that camp, I just tell you that God is drawing your heart. It is his mercy and his love that you even see it. It is the Holy Spirit drawing you saying, hey, Jesus has come for that. You don't have to fix yourself. Come and turn to him and he will save you and he will adopt you and love you forever. You do not have to save yourself, but if God is drawing you, please don't ignore it anymore. Go and be prayed with and be prayed for and come and take at the table with us as one who is in the family of God, depending on the work of Jesus. The story of our church over the years is there's been many people who've either thought they were believers or just kind of never asked the question who've later come to faith. If God is stirring that in you, no matter how long you've been with us, do not let the enemy press you into a corner of shame. Come and be prayed with and be prayed for and turn your life over to Jesus. Man, you guys can come back up. Here's the hope. There's no one who does not have a way that they can pray forward today. God has developed much fruit in you. Thank him. Ask him to do more. If you're tired and there hasn't been much fruit come out of your life, ask for help in it. If God is drawing you and you've never turned your life to him, do that. And then we can come to the table and take. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he is betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Hear these words. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming what the Lord has done for you when you take the elements. If you've been developing fruit, it is only by your work. Thank you, Father. Your sacrifice is enough. If, you, if, if you're tired and kind of derailed, the sacrifice is still enough. He, he hasn't cast you out. If you're coming into the family for the first time, you're, you're, you're going, you, your body and blood is enough. Thank you for saving me. You do not have to fix yourself to come to the table. You call upon the name of the Lord and he will save you. Friends, I pray that we continue to grow in prayer that we wrestle in prayer and see the beauty of who God is in his presence and the work that he wants to do in us. We stand and pray with me. God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We ask that you draw near to us today. We need you, Father. Lord, we ask that you would work, that you would draw hearts to you. Lord, we wanna see your kindness. Lord, we want to see the beauty of what you have done. Lord, for those that may be just a little bit beat down and tired and they cannot see your love, would you show them that they are beloved? Would you show them that they are cared for, that you are loving and that you are kind? 
Lord, would you show those who are too hard on themselves the beauty of the fruit that you have brought? Would you show those who are tired that renewed strength and zeal can be had? Would you show those who feel like they're way too far off that the sacrifice of Jesus is enough? Lord, draw us to you. We ask humbly that you would meet us. We ask boldly for your presence. Come, Father. Draw near to us. Let us feel your presence. Let us know your goodness and your love, God. As we draw near to you, would you draw near to us? Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. You're so patient and you're so kind. For every work or every fruit that you have bore in us, we thank you for that. It is not us, it is you. And Lord, we ask that you continue to do more. We love you, Jesus, be made much of. Spirit, come. Pray that in your name. Amen.